Section 17 of Revelations of a Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. Revelations of a Wife by Adele Garrison. Chapter 17 A Danger and a Problem. Safe in the shelter of the aquarium restroom, my mother-in-law faced me. Her eyes were cold and hard, her tones like ice as she spoke. Margaret, what is the meaning of this outrageous scene to which you have just subjected me? Am I to understand that this man is typical of your associates and friends? If so, I am indeed sorrier than ever that my son was ever inveigled into marrying you. For the moment I had a primitive instinct to scream and to smash things generally, a sort of berserk rage. The insult left me deadly cold. Fortunately we were alone in the room, but I lowered my voice almost to a whisper as I replied to her. "'Mrs. Graham,' I said, "'I never in my life knew there was a man like Mr. Underwood until I married your son.' He and his wife, Lillian Gale, are your son's most intimate friends. He has almost forced me to meet them time and again against my own inclinations. Of course, after what you have just said, there can be no further question of our trip together. If you will kindly wait here, I will telephone your son to come and get you at once. I started for the door. But a little gasping cry from my mother-in-law stopped me. She was feebly beating the air with her hands, her eyes were distended, and her cheeks and lips had the ashen color which I had learnt to associate with my own little mother's frequent attacks. Filled with remorse, I flew to her side and lowered her gently into an armchair which stood near. Snatching her handbag, I opened it and took out a little bottle of volatile salts which I knew she carried. I pressed it into her hands and then took out a tiny bottle of drops with the familiar label. They were the same that my mother had used for years. Taking a spoon, which I also found in the bag, I measured the drops, added a bit of water from the faucet at the adjoining room, and gave them to her. As I came toward her, I heard her murmuring to herself. Lillian Gale, Lillian Gale, she was saying. How blind I've been! Even in my anxiety for her condition, I found time to wonder as to the significance of her exclamations. Evidently, the name of Lillian Gale was familiar to her. From her tones, I also knew that it was not a welcome name. What was there in this past friendship of Dicky and Mrs. Underwood to cause his mother so much emotion? I remembered the comments I had heard at the theatre about my husband's friendship with this woman. All my old doubts and misgivings, which had been smothered by the very real admiration I had felt for Lillian Gale's many good qualities, revived. What was the secret in the lives of these two? I felt that for my own peace of mind I must know. The color was gradually coming back to my mother-in-law's face. 
I stood by her chair, forgetting her insults, remembering nothing save that she was old and a sick woman. "'Is there anything I can get for you?' I asked as I saw the strained look in her eyes die out. "'Nothing, thank you,' she said. Then, to my surprise, she reached up her hand, took mine in hers, and pressed it feebly. I could not understand her quick transition from bitter contempt to friendly warmth. Evidently, something in my words had startled her and had changed her viewpoint. But I put speculation aside until some more opportune time. The imperative thing for me was to minister to her needs, mentally and physically. "'How do you feel now?' I asked. "'Much better, thank you.' she replied, then in a tone I had never heard from her lips before. Come here, my child. I could hardly credit my own ears. Surely those gentle words, that soft tone, could not belong to my husband's mother, who, in the short time she had been an inmate of our home, had lost no opportunity to show her dislike for me and her resentment that her son had married me but I obeyed her and came to her side. She put up her hand and took mine, and I saw her proud old face work with emotion. I was unjust to you a few moments ago, Margaret, she said, and I want to beg your pardon. If she had not been old, in feeble health, and my husband's mother, I would have considered the word scant reparation for the contemptuous phrases with which she had scourged my spirit a few moments before. But I was sane enough to know that the simple I beg your pardon from the lips of the elder Mrs. Graham was equivalent to a whole torrent of apologies from any ordinary person. I knew my mother-in-law's type of mind. To admit she was wrong, to ask for one's forgiveness, was to her a most bitter thing. So I put aside from me every other feeling but consideration of the proud old woman holding my hand, and said gently, I can assure you that I cherish no resentment. Let us not speak of it again. I am afraid we shall have to speak of it, at least of the incident which led me to say the things to you I did, she returned. I saw with amazement that she was trying to conquer an emotion, the reason for which I felt certain had something to do with her discovery that the Underwoods were Dick's friends. I have a duty to you to perform, she went on, a very painful duty, which involves the reviving of an old controversy with my son. I beg that you will not try to find out anything concerning its nature. It is far better that you do not. I felt smothered, as if I were being swathed in folds upon folds of black cloth. What could this mystery be, this secret in the past friendship of my husband and Lillian Gale, the woman whom he had introduced to me as his best friend, and into whose companionship and that of her husband, Harry Underwood, he had thrown me as much as possible. A hot anger rose within me. What right had anyone to deny knowledge of such a secret, or to discourage me in any attempt to find out its nature? 
I resolved to lose no time in probing the unworthy thing to its depths. My mother-in-law's next words crystallized my determination. "'I think I ought to see Richard at once,' she said. "'I am sorry to give up our trip. I had quite counted upon seeing some of old New York today, but I wish to lose no time in seeing him. Besides, I do not think I am equal to further sightseeing.' "'It will be of no use for you to go home,' I said smoothly, "'for Richard will not be there, and he has left the studio by now, I am sure. "'He has an engagement with an art editor this afternoon. "'We may not be able to look at the churches you wish to see, "'but you ought to have some luncheon before we go home. "'I will call a cab, and we will go over to Francis Tavern, "'one of the most interesting places in New York.' You know Washington said farewell to his officers in the long room on the second floor. The first part of my sentence was a deliberate falsehood. I had no reason to believe Dicky would not be at his studio all day, but I had resolved that no one should speak to my husband on the subject of the secret which his past and that of Lillian Gale shared until I had had a chance to talk to him about it. I do not know when a simple problem has so perplexed me as did the dilemma I faced while sitting opposite my mother-in-law at lunch in Francis Tavern. With the obstinacy of a spoiled child, the elder Mrs. Graham was persisting in sitting with her heavy coat on while she ate her luncheon, although our table was next to the big old fireplace in which a good fire was burning. Indeed, it was the table's location which she had selected herself that was the cause of her obstinacy. She had construed an innocent remark of mine into a slur upon her choice, and had evidently decided to wear her coat to emphasize the fact that in spite of the fire she was none too warm, and there she sat all through lunch with her heavy coat on. As I watched the beads of perspiration upon her forehead, and her furtive dabbing at them with her handkerchief, I realized that something must be done. I saw that she would soon be in a condition to receive a chill which might prove fatal. Suddenly her imperious voice broke into my thoughts. "'Where is the long room of which you spoke? On the second floor?' "'Yes. Would you like to see it?' "'Very much.' She rose from her chair, crossed the dining-room into the hall, and descended the staircase, and I followed her upward, noting again with the quick remorsefulness her slow step, the way she leaned upon the stair-rail for support, and her quickened breathing as she neared the top. It was a little thing, after all, I told myself sharply, to subordinate my individuality and cater to her whims. I resolved to be more considerate of her in the future. But my native caution made me make a reservation. I would yield to her wishes whenever my self-respect would let me do so. I had a shrewd notion that a person who would cater to every whim of my husband's mother would be little better than a slave. She spent so much time over the letters in Washington's handwriting the snuff-boxes and keys and coins with which the cases were filled, that I was alarmed lest she should overtire herself. 
I did not dare to venture the suggestion that she should postpone her inspection until another time. But when I saw her shiver and draw her cloak more closely about her, I resolved to brave her possible displeasure. "'I am afraid you are taking cold,' I said, going up to her. "'Do you think we had better leave the rest of these things for another visit?' Her face, as she turned it toward me, frightened me. It was gray and drawn, and her whole figure was shaking as with the ague. "'I am afraid I am going to be ill,' she said faintly. "'I am so cold.' I put her in a chair and dashed down the stairs. "'Please call a taxi for me at once and bring some brandy or wine upstairs,' I said to the attendant. "'My mother-in-law is ill.' As the taxi hurried us homeward, I became more and more alarmed at her condition. Her very evident suffering now heightened my fears. "'Are we nearly there?' she said faintly. "'I am so cold.' "'Only a few blocks more.' I tried to speak reassuringly. Then I ventured on something which I had wanted to do ever since we left the tavern— but which my mother-in-law's dislike of being aided in any way had prevented. I slipped off my coat, and turning toward her, wrapped it closely around her shoulders, and took her in my arms as I would a child. To my surprise she huddled closer to me, only protesting faintly. "'You must not do that. You will take cold.' "'Nonsense,' I replied. "'I never take cold, and we are almost there.' "'I am so glad,' she sighed, and leaned more heavily against me. As I felt her weight in my arms, I realized that she was actually clinging to me, actually depending upon me for help and comfort. I felt my heart warm toward her. I have never worked faster in my life than when I helped my mother-in-law undress before the blazing gas log, put her nightgown and heavy bathrobe around her, and immersed her feet in the foot-bath of hot mustard-water which Katie had brought to me. As I worked over her, I came to a decision. I would get her safe and warm in bed, leave Katie within call, then slip out and telephone Dickie from a neighboring drug store. I did not dare to send for a physician against my mother-in-law's expressed prohibition. On the other hand, I knew that Dickie would be very angry if I did not send for one. The hot foot-bath and the steaming drink which I had given her when she first came in, together with the warmth of the gas-log, seemed to make my mother-in-law more comfortable. As I dried her feet and slipped them into a pair of warm bedroom slippers, she smiled down at me. "'At least I am not cold now,' she said. "'Do you think you had better come and lie down now?' I asked. "'Yes, I think it would be better,' she asserted. And with Katie and me upon either side, she walked into her room and got into bed. I slipped the bedroom slippers off, put one hot-water bag to her feet and the other to her back, covered her up warmly, and lowered the shade. Her eyes closed immediately.' I stood watching her breathing for two or three minutes. It was heavier, I fancied, than normal. As I went out of the room, I spoke in a low tone to Katie, directing her to watch her till I returned. 
As I descended the stairs, all doubts of the morning rushed over me. It was long after two o'clock, the hour when Dicky usually returned to the studio. I had jumped at the conclusion that Dicky was lunching with Grace Draper, the beautiful art student who was his model and protégé. It was not so much anger that I felt at Dicky's lunching with another woman as fear. I faced the issue frankly. Grace Draper was much too beautiful and attractive a girl to be thrown into daily intimate companionship with any man. I felt in that moment that I hated her as much as I feared her. I hoped that it would not be her voice which I would hear over the phone. I felt that I could not bear to listen to those deep, velvety tones of hers. But when I reached the drugstore and entered the telephone booth, it was her voice which answered my call of Dickie's number. "'Yes, this is Mr. Graham's studio,' she said smoothly. "'No, Mr. Graham is not here. He has not been here since eleven o'clock. Pardon me, is this not Mrs. Graham to whom I am speaking?' "'I am Mrs. Graham, yes,' I replied, trying to put a little cordiality into my voice. "'You are Miss Draper, are you not?' "'Yes,' she replied. "'Mr. Graham wished me to give you a message. "'He was called away to a conference with one of the art editors about eleven o'clock. "'He expected to lunch with him, and said he might not be in the studio until quite late this afternoon.' "'Have you any idea where he is lunching, or where I could reach him?' I asked sharply. "'Why, no, Mrs. Graham, I have not. Is there anything wrong?' "'His mother has taken ill, and I am very much worried about her. If Mr. Graham comes in, or telephones, will you ask him to come home at once, phoning me first, if he will?' "'Of course, I will attend to it. Is there anything else I can do?' "'Nothing, thank you. You are very kind,' I returned, and there was genuine warmth in my voice this time, for the discovery that I had been mistaken in my idea of Dicky's luncheon engagement made me so ashamed of myself that I had no more rancor against my husband's beautiful protégé. I laughed bitterly at my own silliness as I turned from the telephone. While I had been tormenting myself for hours at the picture I had drawn of Dicky and his beautiful model lunching vis-a-vis, Dicky had been keeping a prosaic business engagement with a man, and his model had probably lunched frugally and unromantically on a sandwich or two brought from home. End of chapter 17